Man, I, uh, Jim, your comments for, in communion were dead on. Um, I loved that. I, I almost like stood up and like said, yes. Um, I grew up with the NIV version of the Bible, and I still, there you are, Jim, I still got the same impression. I was growing up thinking, oh, no, I'm not thinking about the cross. Oh, no, I'm going to be condemned. And and then realized, just like you said, it's so beautiful. That is something good to do. But the emphasis of the verse, man, look at the body. Look at the body of Christ. Recognize his body. And that's something that, um, man, I struggle with pers- perspective. I really do. Um Yesterday, I had uh, my mind broke. I, we, one moment, I was in the park in the dirt working with the homeless ministry, and next moment, I was wearing a suit at a gala. And, and I was, I was sitting here going, man, I'm just, this is crazy, man. I'm just trying to figure it out. You know, God talked to me, but I heard things at both places that were super beautiful. And um, I know sometimes people might get the perspective when you're down at the homeless ministry that we're standing in the river and people are coming to be baptized and there's this amazing thing happening, right? Um, but the truth is, it's frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. Um, and uh, a lot of times you just stand there and you don't know where you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to be doing. Um, I went to one person to talk to him yesterday and I said, uh, man, just, hey, I'm Jeff and I want... And they always assume I'm a cop because I got short hair. <laughs> and no, they really do. I get asked that a lot uh, when I'm down there. But, but uh, uh, he said, man, I don't know my name. I'm too high. Uh, and that's a common response for me anyway. Um, I feel frustrated. I don't feel like I make much of an impact. And so, you know, I, I, get, I like to watch Bob. I like to watch John. I like to watch Taryn. A lot of the people that are down there working when I'm down there, but a lot of times you just get frustrated and you put the plastic gloves on and you just want to serve food, and that's good, that's healthy. At least I can do that, right? Um, But to discern, to recognize, where am I supposed to be right now? Who needs help? And I wish I had that discernment. I wish I had that discernment. Um, Sitting in the gala, it was beautiful, you know, obviously a different atmosphere, but... um, Hearing children stand up and talk about the difference that love and concern has shown in their lives. Where their lives are now and where they were. It was powerful. And I was thinking this morning about Jesus in in Luke chapter 8. He's walking and it says the crowds, I like Luke's version of this, it says the crowds were crushing him. Have you ever been in a crowd that was crushing you before? Some of you know what this is. I remember one time I was with my parents and we were trying to get on a bus. Do you remember this? We were trying to get on a bus and I saw my mom getting crushed. Um, and I mean, really. Um, all these people that were, wanted to get out of a blizzard to get on this bus. And they were crushing my mom. I mean, she was going white. And obviously, I, I was going to end everybody right there. And I, it seems like my dad and I just made a shield around her and just pushed and, and, and just to be in that kind of a crowd. And I imagine what it was like. So I've been in a couple of crowds like that where it was just awful like that. And, and 
They were pushing him, and people are trying to approach Jesus, and some of them, they just want to get to Jesus because they want to challenge him. They want to ask him questions. Other people want to get to Jesus just to see what he looks like. They're, they're pushing in to get close to him, and I, I get the impression in the Bible that sometimes the disciples acted as a, almost a bodyguard. You get that impression in a couple of verses where it says, okay, let the children pass. Who's going to pass? They were bouncers in a sense. You know, and, and all these people are pushing in to get close to him. And in Luke chapter 8, all of a sudden he says, who touched me? Just right now, who touched me? And obviously the disciples said, everyone is touching you. Everyone's crushing you right now. And he says, no, I, I felt someone touch me. She approached him the first time just to touch the hem of his garment, just to touch the fringe. And there's so much depth into just that phrase, into what's being said there. But what really struck me this time when I was reading through that that Luke chapter 8, is it says that she came a second time. The first time she came, just secretly, she didn't want to be noticed. She had 12 years of bleeding. She comes and she just wants to touch him. And then she's healed. And she comes a second time and the verse says, trembling. She came trembling on her knees before him because of what he had done in her life. And Jesus had this ability to recognize the touch of desperation. All the crowds that are, that are they're pushing in on him. And he sees Zacchaeus. All the crowds that are pushing in on him constantly and his eyes knew exactly where to go. And he knew that touch. And right now, this morning, thousands of prayers are being lifted up to God. Millions of prayers are being lifted up to God. Some consciously, some unconsciously, but we're lifting up our voices to God. And maybe you're like me and you've thought silly thoughts like, do you, I know you exist. Do you know I exist? Am I just another voice among millions? Do you even hear my prayers? Young women are mutilated. They're being bought and sold and traded like cattle this morning. Disasters have left countless members and countless numbers homeless. 844 million people live in this world without water or safe water. 1.7 million of them are Americans. Deep depression, thoughts of suicide, internet bullying, and it might seem crazy that I would list that with safe water and some of these other things, but... First world problems actually lead to serious consequences. They can be very serious. And right now we're lifting up our prayers and lifting up our voices. And I'm about to preach a message. God hears their cry. And I want you to know I'm aware of all of that. I'm aware of the countless numbers that, that, that petition God. And, and some of you here this morning that don't have it in you to even mention God's name. And a lot of us know what it is to say, I can't even pray. And some of you I've prayed with where you looked at me and said, I can't pray. Would you pray? I know what that is. And I've been there a lot myself where I said, I can't pray. And what God has shown me, and I hope, I hope this comes across clearly this morning. Sometimes the times where I was saying, I can't pray right now, are the times that I was actually praying the most. Because the prayers that are lifted up to God in Scripture are not always conscious, verbal, dear Father prayers. God has this amazing fatherly ability to hear the cry of the heart. And it's incredible. This is the gospel 
that Paul would have grown up with. The gospel of the adoption of the Israelites. Now, he just came out of the language of adoption in Romans chapter 8, earlier in the chapter. And this is a very significant topic, both to the Romans. One thing I want you to know about adoption in Rome, I learned this. I just, I got so excited when I saw this. I was talking to Gary the other day, and it hit me. I said, man, I know what adoption means to our hearts in today's society, but what on earth was adoption in Rome? I don't know what that meant. I don't know what that looked like. So I looked, and my mind was blown. Um, Augustus Caesar. Man, the emperor of Rome. He was not born Augustus Caesar. His, he was born Gaius Octavius. Now, I know that name means nothing to you, but here, that's the whole point. It meant nothing to them either. He was born into nothing. No nobility. Their emperor of Rome was adopted by Julius Caesar. And not just that, Tiberius, Augustus, countless others, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian, all of these were adopted. Did you know that? That means they came in and they were given the full rights as a son. You are my heir. You are everything. They gave him everything. This language meant something in a society where babies were discarded. And they actually had, uh, it's gross, it's awful, but it's history. They had piles where you would bring babies and they were discarded. And if you wanted, you could go and bring a child and you would bring him in. And, and in Rome, you gave them the full right as a child. And children were saved from poverty and children were saved from death through adoption. And they, inherit, they received the full right of sons. This was language that meant something to them. And in Romans, Paul expresses that the Gentile has now been adopted and are co-heirs. He's going to say that in chapter 11. But he also says in the next chapter, in chapter 9, the Jews also had received the adoption of sons. Both of us have been adopted. But this is when they were adopted, the Jews. This was the gospel that Paul grew up with. The Israelites groaned. Here, listen to this language. They groaned in their slavery. And they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God heard the groaning. He felt the pain. It might be the groaning where you didn't think to say, Dear God, but he heard what was going in your heart. That Abba, that cry. This is where I'm at right now, God. And he looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And he showed compassion on them. It says in the next chapter, I've heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering, so I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that that land into a good and spacious land. And I hear that kind of cry. I hear the Abba. I hear that which is lifted up. man. But there are so many times in Scripture, and I know these verses aren't super encouraging, but I have to talk about these in this this context. Do you know how many times in Scripture God says, I will not hear your prayer. He says that several places in Scripture. I will not hear your prayer. Just some examples of those. In 1 Peter 3, God says, Husbands, treat your wives with respect so that nothing will hinder your prayer. Husbands, 
You're not treating this lady that I've given you in your life, and you're not treating my daughter with respect, and then you're going to turn and pray to me. I will not hear your prayer. James 4, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. James 1, you ask and you believe, but you doubt. Isaiah 58, you stretch out your hands to me. You cry out to me. And I'm just going to read some of the chapter beginning of verse 2. It says this, For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not been forsaken, and not, not forsaken the commands of its God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife. And it's striking each other with wicked fists. It's this idea that, that as Jim said, they misunderstood 1 Corinthians 11. They, they're, here they are. I'm coming before you, God, with my sacrifices and my tears and my songs. And I love you. And we have this relationship. But you're not discerning my body. You're not discerning the hurting. You're not discerning those that I, I, I care about. Your heart isn't where my heart is. You cannot fast as you do today. And expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor, the wandering, and, the sh- and with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them? And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light, how about this? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear God. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, I'm right here. Here I am. There are so many places in scripture where God's saying, I'm not going to listen to you right now because your heart isn't with me. You're seeking your will and I'm your genie. And I need you to come to me and seek my will and to seek me out with all your heart. I need that cry. Abba, Father, in Gary's class this morning, it was mentioned, and I loved this, two major points that were made were these. In Romans chapter 7, this is the chapter where Paul's going through this battle within himself. And he's saying, man, that's what I want to do. I'm not doing and that which I'm not, I don't want to do. That's exactly what I do. And I've got this battle within me. And these two points came out in class that I loved. Romans 7 is written in first person. He's not sitting here to just say, this is me. This is where I'm at. And secondly, and this is so important to me, it's written in present tense. He doesn't say, this was my conversion story. Let me tell you my conversion story again. Paul is saying this, this is my ongoing conversion story. This is my ongoing cry. I'm not telling you about the day back when I cried out, Abba, Father. I'm calling you about, I'm talking to you about today when I'm still crying out, Abba, Father. I haven't lost that. The woman that was healed from 12 years of bleeding and touched the, can you imagine if 10 years later, here she is. Well, let me tell you about my conversion story. This is what happened. This is what Jesus did for me. And now, I hope she kept the cry. She kept the cry. She kept the desperation. She didn't lose sight of that perspective. Man, this is, this is what I was thinking about yesterday. How ridiculous of a person I am. Um, 
what are the things that really upset you? And I'm just going to be really honest with you about the things that upset me. Uh, Melinda knows all of these that I'm going to list. They're going to be funny to you, and she's going to say, no, they actually really do upset him. Give me a waxy receipt with a cheap ballpoint pen, and I'm going to lose my mind. I have to face that every single day, man. That's my first world mind, right? Give me a waxy receipt and a ballpoint pen and make me do that forever. I hate it. Slow gas pumps, especially when it's cold, man. You're going to make me wait five minutes to say thank you. No. Um, slow drivers in the left lane. I, can, I confess, I struggle with all of you. Miracle whip, margarine, or any kind of fake sugar drives me absolutely insane. You, fin- you serve it to me, I'm like offended by you. That's my world, man. And it's most of you, too. I, I get really upset about the dumbest things imaginable. And I hate that about myself. I absolutely do. I catch myself thinking like that a whole lot. And God puts me in situations where he says, I want to give you some perspective real quick. Class this morning, we were talking about Paul being confronted with the law. And the purpose of the law doing these two things for you. One, I want to reveal to you how dark your sin really is. And then David brought out, and I want to reveal to you just how great my heart is for my people and for you. And a good example of that is it's, it's kind of a funny text, but a dead serious text. It's in Exodus 22. God says this, Don't abuse the orphan or the widow. Now, he says that throughout Scripture, but in this particular verse, he says this, Don't abuse the orphan or the widow, because if you do, they'll cry out to me, and I'll hear their cry, and I'll kill you. That's what it says. It's the one time in Scripture God just comes right out and says, and I'll kill you. I'll kill you, dead. I'll snatch the life right out of your chest if you hurt my daughter, if you hurt these kids. Here's a good example of that. Moses. I called Moses, man. I have this whole plan for you and the nation of Israel. I brought you to my mountain. I brought you to Horeb. I'm giving you the law. I'm doing all of this. Oh, wait a second. You just named your child Gershom, which means foreigner. And you didn't circumcise him. You just said, this boy, he's a foreigner. He doesn't belong to me. I'm not even going to circumcise him. And God immediately comes down and says, I'm going to kill you dead right now. That's what's happening. He says, you will not neglect the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the alien. You will not behave that way in my kingdom. And I love you. But you can't because I want you to know where my heart always is and always will be. This is where I'm at. Paul was confronted with this and he says, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this mindset that I've got that's gross and that's sick? And then I have this mind bent. Tamara mentioned to me this morning, I loved it. She said, it's crazy. You teach your kid what not to do. And as soon as you teach them what not to do, that's exactly what they're drawn to do. Immediately. As soon as they know that's not what they're supposed to do, that's what they want to do. I said, that's it. That's exactly what Paul seems to be saying is, the law reveals to me that I have this rebellion in my spirit, and it's ongoing. It didn't go away. In the movie, um, since Jim quoted this a couple weeks ago, I'm going to go back to it. Dead Poet Society. Uh, It's one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever. And I I wonder if you picked up on this when you saw the movie, and I know you did. Um, Todd Anderson 
is brought in front of the class and he's called to quote Walt Whitman. And he's supposed to, to recite a Walt Whitman poem in front of the class. And he says, I just want you to come up and say this. Just this one line. I sound my barbaric yawp across the rooftops of the world. And he gets up and he says, okay. I sound my barbaric yawp across the rooftops of the world. He says, now say it with meaning, man. And he comes up and he can't. He, he, he just, he doesn't get it. It's just words to him. It's not in his gut. And then later in the movie, life hits him hard and his best friend takes his life. He's kneeling in the snow. He's on the edge of throwing up. He can't say anything. And he just screams out and he's running in a field, running in the snow, and he cries out. And I think the point of the movie is this. You heard the poem all of your life, but until you lived it, until you've lived through this, you don't catch it. You don't get what he's saying. You can say and memorize all your life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But until you've been there and you felt the weight and you felt the deliverance, that's the best commentary on Scripture, man, is life. It's one thing to read the Greek. It's one thing to look at different translations to get what you're saying. But God doesn't want us to simply come to an understanding of the text. He wants us to feel the force of it. To feel the weight of it. I want to just read. um, There's a a psalm. uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 18. It's 2 Samuel 22. They say the same thing. But... I want to share this with you, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. And this is one of those like terrifying texts about God, okay? How about this? This is how God is described. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered the enemies, bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Now that's an awesome verse, right? But let me give you the two verses that surround that text. Because it puts that scary, crazy language in a whole new light. This is the first verse that I didn't read. Verse 7. In my distress, I called out to the Lord. I called out to my God from his temple. He heard my voice and my cry came before his ears. That's when God bowed the heavens and came down in wrath. I heard my child calling before me. And then it closes with verse 17. He reached down from on high and he took hold of me. And he drew me out of deep waters. That psalm is about God's, ooh, 
the deliverance, the way I felt when I saw my mom getting crushed. And I said, I'm coming and I don't care who I hurt. I'm going to save my mom right now. I'm going to do something right now. I can't let this happen. This is God's heart where he's at in this. This is um, not Exodus 2.26, but let me read Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. Isn't that a truth? When you come before God in prayer, we're all alike. We struggle with this. God, I, I, I have a list of the needs of the sick. I have hopes and desires and dreams. But God, there's something in my gut sometimes I can't express. There's something here that I, and what I love is throughout Scripture, and I have too long of a list to share all of these with you, but I cannot tell you how many verses in the Old and New Testament. The book of John is focused on this theme. The Old Testament is focused on this theme. Revelation opens it with a focus on this theme. God knows what's in the heart. I'll just share the first three. Um, The Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, says in 1 Kings 8. 1 Chronicles 28, the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind our thoughts. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the book of John, throughout this idea of God hears something beyond our prayers, he hears and he sees what is in our hearts. And it says this, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, I won't get into the Greek here, but I'm going to tell you this. It, most likely, this is intended to say not that the Spirit is putting one hand on us and one hand on God and groaning for us. That, that's how the verse reads here. It, it's, the groanings are ours. And the Spirit is coming, of God is interceding in our life and saying, I am going to inject myself in this situation, and I am going to work for you. And I am on your side, and that's going to take us in the next week when we get into verse 28. But this idea that I am on your side, I am working for you, I am not going to let, I'm not going to drop you. I'm going to intercede for you when your groans are beyond words. And he who searches hearts and knows what is the mind, knows what the mind of the Spirit, um, going back to the earlier in the chapter, he's saying this, I know the mind, I know the heart that is set on the Spirit as opposed to the heart that is set on the flesh. Um, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And this idea that, that God is on our side. He has adopted you as His child. He loves you. He hears the cry of your heart. And he wants us to know this. I am on your side. I'm with you. I'm not going to let you go. And I know a message like this, this, and this is, I'm just going to be honest about what I prayed this morning. Um, a message like this can be really comforting. Um, and a message like this can be very painful to hear. And, and the reason why is because so many times you've been there and you know what it is. It's like, this is where I'm at, Jeff. You're talking in my life right now. This is my heart. And I don't feel like he's there. 
there's so many prayers I just don't feel like he has answered. And I understand that. I get that. And God wants to just remind us over and over and over again throughout Scripture that when it feels like he can't hear you, he does. He hurts for us. And there are people in this world that will die in abuse. And I have to talk about this in light, knowing that, seeing that. And God's saying this, whether it's in this life and the life to come, I want you to know I'm your father and I love you. But what I pray is, whether you're in the position of hurting and disbelief, or you're in the position of grace and you love to sing, man, you're... I pray that we won't lose the spirit, that I won't lose the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, that cry of desperation. I hope you didn't hear this morning that unless that's where you're at, God's just not going to listen to your prayers. That's not true. God loves you, right? But it is true, and God seems to emphasize throughout Scripture that He has a heart, and He's particularly drawn to that. I was so excited listening to Francis Chan talk about something really similar recently, and and I, I felt the same as he did. There are a few times in my life where I felt specifically I cried out to God, and it wasn't even with my mouth. It was just I knew my soul was there. God, I need you now. I I desperately need you. And if you know what it is when God answers a prayer in your life that is so specific and so amazing and and the timing is so clear that it was obviously God that responded to your prayer, I hope you know what that is. But the idea that I just prayed to the God of the universe, to the God who made everything. The idea that I just came before him and he heard me and responded to me in love. That that blows my mind. And I want to lift up a prayer to him now. And prayer is something that I love to talk about. It's one of the most difficult topics for me to talk about because especially praying publicly... This looks nothing like my private prayers. And if I prayed a prayer like I pray in private, it would be weird for a lot of us. Um, But even when I pray in private, it's one of those things where I usually stand before God and say, I am so clueless. I feel so foolish. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. I don't think like you do. And I just want to sit and listen to you, God. I just want your will to be accomplished. I used to think in this life, God, help me accomplish something big. There's got to be something more. Help me do more. And now it's less like that and more thinking, God, in this life, I want to see you accomplish something big. Don't, don't let it be about me. Let it be about you. But let your name be exalted. And let me watch it. Let me celebrate you. But teach me to pray. And more importantly, instead of, you know, you get up here in front of people and sometimes you're worried about what you're going to say in a prayer, recognizing that so much of prayer in Scripture has to do with the heart and it's a continual prayer that's being lifted before him. Always. And he's always reading the heart. And he always rushes to the need of that heart that cries out to him, I desperately need you right now. So, Father, I want to come before you, and now I'm just turning my words to you.
and I, I don't know. This, this verse is so accurate. I don't know what to pray for as I ought. We don't know what to pray for. I'm aware of all the suffering that's in this world right now. And I'm aware that you have a heart for the widow and the orphan and the poor and the hurting and the alien and the stranger and for the body. And your church today, throughout my life and throughout history, we've become so arrogant and we fight and we divide over matters that have nothing at all to do with you. And we do it to distract ourselves from where your heart is and where our heart belongs. And I pray, God, that we would, you would give us a heart that shows preference to one another. That honors others above ourselves. That goes into this world and reflects your heart for those that are in need. Um, it's such a blessing to be called your child. To receive the promise of a new nature that our groans will be answered. And we long to be with you, but while we're here, I just pray that we would reflect your heart and who you are. I want to lift up the hearts in this room that are angry right now, that have a rage against you, against church, religion. And I pray, God, that um, you would reveal yourself as a God of all love and a God of all compassion and the God that gives us every breath we breathe, even the breaths we use to curse you. And I pray, Father, that you would, you would accomplish this very task today, that you would reach to those that desperately need you right now, to those that are in a dark place in their lives and have lost their zeal and have lost their cry I pray, God, that you would set them in a wide and spacious place, in a place of freedom, and bring them into a whole new life that you have planned and prepared for them. I want to lift up to you Mountain States Children's Home. I want to lift up to you Church for the Homeless. I want to lift up to you all those that are in this room right now and in your kingdom in Fort Collins that are, are, are desperately wanting to work as your hands and your feet. And I pray, God, that you would bless these efforts and let these efforts be what define your people more than the songs that we sing, but the compassion that we have. Uh, it's in Christ's name we come before you. Amen. Let's stand and worship.